Uh, Good to be with you guys tonight. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Uh, Luke chapter 12, we're in verses 4 through 34 uh, this evening. Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 12, we see the setting of all these people who have been following Jesus, hanging on his every word, and we're told that Many thousands are gathered together, so much so that they're beginning to trample one another. So this is, this is quite the intense crowd. They're really hanging on the words of Jesus. And when we get into these verses of verse 4 through 34 tonight, we begin to see that the words of Jesus are speaking very specifically to these sort of felt needs that you and I often experience in our lives. He speaks to our fear, and he speaks to our worry. He speaks to our fear and our worry. And he almost uses these two words interchangeably. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat down and tried to analyze and think through what is the difference between fear and worry. And so I had to sit down and really try to navigate that a lot this week. And so uh, I'll put this here on the screen for you. But um, realizing this, that fear, you guys, often reveals what it is that has control over us. Fear reveals what has control over us. And then worry reveals what we want to have control over. Um, So these are the two ways that fear and worry really manifest themselves as as very complementary things, but often uh, they're very different things. It's our fears and anxieties that are really just symptoms, if you think about it, that are our longing for security. They're manifesting that you and I have this longing to be secure. So we see that fear reveals what has control over us, so we're looking to something else in order to make us feel secure. And then worry reveals what we want to have control over, what we seek to have in order that we would feel secure. And so a, a major question for you and I when we, when we come to this text tonight is, is really just examining ourselves using this question, what is it that controls me then? Like what controls me? And what do you want to have control over in your life? And maybe the most important question is really why? Why? I mean, if I were a betting man, I would bet that every single one of us felt fear at some point this week. There was something that happened in your life that you began to feel controlled, you know, about, right? Uh, Maybe you're like, that's not me. But but I bet you that maybe sometime in your life, maybe it was this week you were driving down the road fairly fast and, and maybe you put your favorite song on, right? And so what did you do? You started getting more comfortable. You started getting into it more. Maybe you started singing that song right? You started belting it out maybe. Maybe you started dancing just a little bit in your car, right? You were feeling super comfortable, right? This is your favorite song. You're going strong. Then what happens? That, that green light turns to yellow, and that yellow light turns to red, and you pull up into the intersection. Then what did you do? You probably turned it down a little bit. You reeled it in, right? You, you stopped singing. Maybe you started muttering it, you know, or something. You grabbed for your coffee. You try to take a sip or whatever. What just happened? Well, you felt fear, didn't you? You were worried that other people saw you just dancing in your car and belting out this song because you're thinking to yourself, what are they going to think about me? Right? What are they going to say about me? Little do you know that probably no one's even watching you. Okay? Maybe I can detail this so well for you because I do this all the time. Right? We feel fear in those ways, little ways, big ways throughout every week. Every single one of us probably felt anxious at some point this week in the last seven days. There are these unknown outcomes in our lives that we dwell on, right? How am I going to pay for that? I got this bill. How am I going to do that? I don't know. You know, will I ever find 
the spouse that I'm looking for, right? Will I ever get into that friend group or something? Right? Will so-and-so in my life who I deeply love, will they finally get better, right? We have these unknown outcomes. But isn't it interesting that we don't want to fear anything and you and I don't want to feel anxious about anything, yet it feels uncontrollable, isn't it? Like no one wants to feel this way. But when you think about these things, you go, I feel so powerless. So you often just fall victim to it. Like, oh, I guess this is the way it is. Or maybe you get to the point where you finally just feel like yelling at yourself and you say, stop it, stop being anxious, right? Stop being afraid, but it doesn't really do anything, does it? Yelling at something, bucking up and grabbing hold of the reins of your life and just trying to get upset at yourself won't fix it either, will it? I mean, that'd be the equivalent almost of me walking out to my car tonight, walking up to it and seeing a flat tire on it. We all would know what it is that I should do when I see a flat tire on my car. Yet when I look at that flat tire, I want you to imagine that you saw me, I went out there, I stood at it, and I yelled at the tire, and I said, stop it, work properly, inflate yourself. Right? You would think that I had gone crazy, okay? I would be concerned about myself as well, if I'm being really honest with you. Why? Because we know that's not how it works. You have to fix it, right? How do you fix it? You replace it, don't you? And that's why Jesus is so good, you guys, because he walks up to us this evening and he reveals where and only where the remedy for our security problem is. He offers us gospel security and it's not found through merely grit or through saying stop it. It's found through replacement. We need to replace our fear and what it is that we seek. And so this outline should be on the screen for you. We see this gospel security really navigated this way through our passage. We see a secure fear that Jesus calls us into. Then we see a tragic story that Jesus tells that most of us wouldn't think is all that tragic. And then thirdly, we see a worthwhile search that Jesus calls us into. So I'm just going to read as we go through this passage this evening. It's quite a bit of text. We're going to cover it as best we can. Let's look at a secure fear in verse 4. Jesus says this, what? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself, or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Remember at the end of chapter 11, if you look up in your Bibles and in the beginning of chapter 12, we see that religious leaders are picking up steam in their opposition of Jesus. This is a problem because that means if you want to follow Jesus, uh, we are probably going to have a natural sense of fear for those who are going to oppose us. Right, this is probably going to be a problem in our own lives as well. And Jesus goes into this more uh, in depth in verses 11 through 12 when he talks about people who are followers of him being brought before the synagogues and rulers and authorities. 
And they're anxious because they're wondering, what should I say when I'm put on trial against these people for my faith in Jesus? And he says, basically, don't worry. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. He'll guide you. I know that you're not alone in any sort of persecution that you ever face. Jesus says to us here that if religious leaders are going to oppose me, therefore, you will naturally fear those who kill the body that will take your life. See that in verse 4. But we may not fear living in Gresham, Oregon. We may not fear being killed for our faith. You might not feel that way right now. But I bet you, you fear at many times being canceled for your faith. There's different types of fear that you have when it comes to the fear of man for following Jesus. And we know this, that even if you don't die for Jesus in Gresham, it will cost you. It may cost you a social circle. It may cost you a promotion. It could cost you a whole host of various things. It will cost you. Especially if we think of missionaries, we pray for every single week, we pray for the persecuted church. Missionaries who live throughout the world and actually give their lives for Jesus. And so if I was someone like them living overseas, being drugged before people in order to be executed for following him, this would be such a comfort to my heart. This makes me think of the martyr uh, Bishop Hooper, uh, which this should be on the screen for you. He was urged by a Roman Catholic to save his life by recanting and not be burnt at the stake. And he said this, he said, life is sweet, death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. He didn't recant. It cost him. And so how do you get there, right? Jesus doesn't merely say to us tonight, don't fear people. What does he say? I warn you who to fear. You see that? So he doesn't tell you not to fear. He tells you to fear someone else. Who is that? He says the one who has authority not just to kill, but to cast into hell. You see that in verse 5. I tell you, fear him. Who's that? Well, verse 6 tells you. It's God, isn't it? Fear the one whose authority extends beyond the grave, right? If you're ever afraid, it's kind of helpful to ask yourself the question, well, I'm afraid of this. What happens if that happens? And you kind of play it out in your mind. And eventually you realize, I probably shouldn't be as afraid as I am. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, and what if they take your life? You're like, well, then what? Well, they can't do anything after that. Jesus is saying, well, what about the person who can? You should fear him. And so Jesus goes on this uh, this. Uh, teaching moment here in verse 5, talking about how God not only takes life, but he can cast it into hell. The word hell here is Gehenna. It's, it's different than the word Hades in your Bible. The word Hades means a place of the dead, whereas Gehenna carries the notion of punishment or judgment. Gehenna was actually a literal valley south of Jerusalem that was cursed, and so there was always uh, fire burning there, and so this would have been a very vivid image in these people's minds. But Jesus is saying God has authority to cast you even into hell after you die. So fear him. I know that hell has fallen on hard times and most people don't want to think about the reality of hell. But here Jesus himself is telling you about the reality of hell. And it's a sobering thought. Human beings have limited powers, but they could only bring about physical death. That's the extent. But God, his power is not limited. Verses 8 through 10, then we have this other warning from Jesus. And in summary, he says, if we deny that we have any part with him, then we will face ultimate denial. 
But more than a warning here, notice what happens here. Jesus gives you what? A wonderful promise, doesn't he? He says what? If we identify ourselves with Jesus, we can be sure that even upon our own death, he will identify himself with you. Won't he? And then you have this this wonderful um, grace offered to you. Right? Verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's, that's Jesus, will be forgiven. This is a divine passive. Literally, it's God will forgive you. What this is talking about here is you and I have moments of weakness in our lives where people might say, are you identified with Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? And you might crumble under that moment of weakness and say, oh, I don't know him. You kind of feel like you're Peter, right? Who, while Jesus is arrested and on trial, he was told, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him. And Peter said, oh, I won't do that. But when Jesus was arrested and on trial, Peter denied Jesus three different times. And that third time even, it was because there were these eyes of this little girl around that charcoal fire that said, you know him, don't you? Even the eyes of that little girl had so much control over Peter that he denied Jesus. Yet there's forgiveness offered if if that is your story, if those are the moments that we have, but there is an ultimate rejection that that is not possible to be forgiven, and that's what verse 10 is talking about. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? This is often called the unforgivable sin, and to be honest, its, its meaning is far from clear. But this doesn't mean that you just merely say a few magic words and you're completely uh, rejected forever. That's not what this is getting at. Most likely, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is where you reach a point in your life where you completely reject the Spirit's work in your life. And what is the Spirit's work in your life? Well, we are told that the Holy Spirit comes and he brings conviction of sin upon our lives. He makes Jesus beautiful to you so that we repent and trust in him. And so if I reject the Spirit's work in my life, I'm rejecting the salvation that I absolutely need. So of course, when I die, then I cannot be saved. So so what is Jesus trying to do in these verses, you guys? Is he just trying to freak us out? Is that what he's trying to do? Well, we find out here that that's the furthest from his intentions. He's just calling us to replace our fear. His desire is to reassure us. He gives this little illustration to you and I about birds in verses 6 and 7. Do you see it? Right? He says, if are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And everybody listening would go, yeah, duh, right? That's how much five sparrows costs. And if you think about it, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says one penny will get you two sparrows. So if one penny could get you two sparrows, we would think two pennies could get us four. But in Jesus' day, he's saying sparrows are so devalued that if you spend two pennies, they'll just throw in a fifth for free. Right? That's literally what he's saying. That sparrows were the food of the poor, right? So they didn't even value it that much. They're like, you just have the fifth one on me, right? It doesn't even cost me anything, right? But what's his point? Not one of them, even the fifth one, is forgotten by God. Even the one that no one values and cares about. God doesn't forget them, right? What, what's his point? Right? His, his point is that if God values and doesn't forget about the sparrows, even the one that no one wants, then don't you think he knows and values you? He says, why even the hairs of your head are numbered. God knows the most intimate details about your life, details that you don't even know about. I have no idea how many hairs are on my head. Some of you know, 
right? And I'll join you someday, okay? I'm getting there, trust me. But, but all of us are like, I don't know how many hairs I've grown today, how many I've lost. We have no idea that amount of detail about our lives, but God does. He has not forgotten you. So this is the God that I'm called to fear. The God that knows me will not forget me. That if I identify myself with him, he will identify himself with me on that great day. He will not just cast me into hell. He'll say, come on in, you're mine. What a fear replacement, huh? That's that a glorious invitation. This is what can stop us. This is the only thing, you guys, that can ever stop us from fearing men. It is replacing our fear with the fear of God. That's it. William Gurnall said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. This is the remedy. If you want it, it's the remedy. He next tells you a tragic story. Someone in the crowd, beginning of verse 13, said to him, 13, said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he said to them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. For many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Right? He has authority. Right? And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure and is not rich towards God. So again, notice Jesus teaching. People are gripped. They have eternity put into their hearts. We learn that in Ecclesiastes. This man interrupts, and he basically says, enough with the spiritual talk. Let's talk about something important. Tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me, this earthly inheritance with me. Notice this. This is really powerful. Notice verse 4. What does it say? Jesus is saying what? I tell you, my friends. Verse 8, I tell you, everyone right? Verse 13, tell my brother. Jesus, enough telling us about this, telling us about this. Tell my brother this. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 16, he told them a story. He told them a story about a guy who was rich. He stored everything up. He was super successful. He relaxed. He felt secure. And he died. I imagine if Jesus were here tonight, I mean, you and I don't read this parable and go, yeah, I've had that problem before. Too much crop, right? Uh, maybe I'll build bigger barns, you know? Maybe I'll do that. I mean, we don't resonate this much with this story, and so Jesus is really just telling us to think about a life that you could live where it would go exactly the way that you want it to, where you never be in want. I mean, maybe you just think of a person who planned very thoughtfully his life, He's a super smart businessman, really wise. He invested well. He had a lot of retirement, enough in savings. He had so much money, he even gave some of it away, right? He, he, he gave money to charities. He, he even had a spouse, right? He had a wife, like his dream wife in his mind. He had kids, right? He had two, of course, right? One boy and one girl, because why else, you know, would you not have one of each? 
Right? He had a really nice house, had a great view with it. Right? He had so much money, they could travel on vacation wherever they want. They did really different vacations every single year. It was awesome. Right? His kids both graduated, went to really good colleges, and they excelled. He was so successful, he retired at the age of 55, and now he just spends his days doing the things that he wants to do, whatever that is in his mind. But one day, he wakes up in the morning. He's standing on his deck looking out over his view. He brewed a nice craft cup of coffee. He's enjoying it, just thinking about his life, how all these people are his friends, how everybody likes him. Right? He's like, man, my life is just so ideal. It's literally played out the way that I want it to. And then at that moment, he has a pain in his chest. He falls down. He's rushed to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, he passes away and dies. Hundreds and hundreds of people show up at this person's funeral. Just talking about how great this person was. The obituary that was written for this, this person was, he was so great, so successful, so wise, so strategic. But the obituary that God wrote is what? One word, fool. If you were listening to Jesus' story, it would be so jarring, wouldn't it? Because you go, what are you talking about? This guy did it right. And if you think about what the word fool means, the word fool in Greek literally means without thought. That's what the word means. But ironically, this guy gave a lot of thought to his life. He did well, and then he goes, what am I going to do? I'm going to do this. And he succeeded in it. He made lots of plans. He analyzed things well, and he lived it out the way that he wanted to, didn't he? But Jesus calls him a fool not because he has not given a lot of thought to his life. He calls him a fool because he planned well and succeeded. And he's a fool, though, because he thought he was in control, and his wealth helped him feel that way. And even though he was wealthy in the eyes of everybody, he wasn't wealthy in the eyes of God. He gave a lot of thought to his life. He just thought about the wrong things. So what's the verdict of the story? Why is it so tragic? Jesus gives you the answer. He wasn't rich towards God. He felt secure, but it was an illusion. Right? Your soul is required of you. Don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who can do that, but then has control over your eternal destination. He was not rich towards God. I mean, maybe if you stopped him on the street and you asked him, do you believe in God? He would say, oh, of course I believe in God. Me and God are great. I have nothing against God. God seems wonderful, right? Maybe he even said that, right? But he gave thought only to taking care of himself, his family, and he was good at it. If you think about it, he was self-sufficient, or at least he thought he was, but really he was just self-centered. I mean, notice in just his dialogue alone, I or my, those words are mentioned 11 times. His life was about him. And so the irony is he lived a really comfortable life that he thought he was in control of, but it was an illusion. His soul was required of him, and he soberingly realized, oh, wow, no, I am not in control. God has an authority over me. Guys, if you rip yourself out of the story, if you rewind at the beginning verse here, we see a man who's willing to go to court with his brother and cause division in his family over an earthly inheritance, and maybe his brother really is screwing him over. Maybe that's true. But that still doesn't matter most to God. And that's hard for us to see sometimes when we feel like we're being treated unfairly. 
But we get to this point in Jesus' teaching, and we must ask ourselves, guys, if our soul was required of us tonight, would our lives be a tragic story in the eyes of God? The tragic story pivots into what Jesus wants to actually lead us towards. It's the final replacement, right? There's a secure treasure that we are meant to have. This is where we get to find what it means for us to be rich towards God. Look with me now in verses 22 through 34. What does it say? So Jesus said to his disciples, so these are his people, okay? This is not the crowd, this is his disciples. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And then you are not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do you not seek, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches it and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So these final verses, he shifts in the conversation to speaking directly to his followers. And you see this emphasized down in verse 32. Look down there. We are told that God is their father. That's, that's only Christians, right, who can call upon God as their father, right? They're God's flock, meaning that they have a shepherd, right? And they will possess the kingdom, right? He looks at his people and says, do not be anxious about your life. And what is he speaking to? What kind of anxiety? It's actually very specific anxiety. He's speaking to our worry and concern over our material needs. And if we're just being honest, we live in a time, we live in a country, we live in a place where we don't feel uh, the weight of Jesus' words here. We don't experience the kind of poverty that the vast majority of people hearing Jesus' words would have experienced. And these people were poor. They were like, oh yeah, I know how much sparrows go for, right? And so when he says, sell your possessions, give it to me, they're like, I don't have many. I mean, just think about this, what Jesus is saying to these people. And what's great about Jesus, he doesn't just say, hey, don't worry about these things. Trust me, it's all gonna work out. He gives us a few different reasons why we should not worry. He's wanting to replace your worry with something else that's actually true. Reason number one, look at me, verse 23. There's no more to life. There's more to life than these material things. That's what he says. Jesus is giving us perspective here. There's more to life than food or clothing. Reason number one, it's not all it's cracked up to be, okay? He moves quickly to reason number two. We see this in verses 24 and down. God has a great track record of caring for his creation, and we are much more valuable than than a lot of his creation. If you look in verses 24 down through 28, we are told 
to consider two things. The birds again, right? Jesus loves the birds here. Right? Consider the birds, consider the flowers. He's saying stop looking at your lack. Stop looking at your, the things you're anxious about, not getting. Look at the birds. Look at, look at the flowers. They don't do anything, right? Flowers just grow. God makes them grow. He clothes them, right? Sparrows don't have ways to store up barns like the rich fool does. He just feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than them? It's the same thing that he was talking about earlier. Reason number three, right there in verse 25, Jesus gets even more logical on us. What's the reason? What's the benefit of worry, he says? He's like, if you really do the math, right? right? You, you can't add time and get it back. So it's just not a good way to spend your time, right? It doesn't change anything. It changes you, though. All right, reason four. All right, we see this in verse 30. What does he say? Well, the rest of the world gives their, their pursuit to security in these things. Essentially, he says, well, don't be like the rest of the world, right? We're told in the New Testament that the father or the, new, the world has a father and the world's father is the father of lies. But Jesus' followers have been given a new father and their father is God and he is a shepherd. He knows you need these things, Jesus says. So, so what does it mean then to seek after these things? And why is it wrong to seek after these things? Jesus tells you, there in verse 30, not to seek after these things. Well, because when you and I give our whole pursuit to things that don't last, when you give your pursuit to anything, you inevitably can't pursue something else. Right? That's what he says. Verse 31, what does he say to seek instead? Seek God's kingdom. Luke's been talking about God's kingdom all throughout. Uh, the Gospel of Luke. So if you're like, what does it mean to seek the kingdom? We can go back chapter by chapter and just look at how God is calling us, how Jesus is calling us to pursue the kingdom of God, right? And that is fundamentally to do what? To seek after Jesus' rule, his reign, and his authority in our lives. That's what we should be doing. And he says, when you do that, the stuff that you and I worry about, it kind of gets thrown in as the dessert. All these things will be added to you, right? I will provide for you. And here's the beautiful thing in all of this. In verse 32, what does it say? He says, fear not, little flock. And don't be afraid. This is what he was saying at the beginning. I love this term because although you and I might seem insignificant to the world, you are cherished by God. You are cherished by God. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure. He finds pleasure in giving you the kingdom. Have you ever asked yourself, what makes God happy? Right? What does God enjoy? Well, Jesus tells you he enjoys giving you the kingdom. Right? So, so we are told to seek the very thing that God finds pleasure in giving. Seek this. God loves to give it. It's, he finds pleasure in doing that. I mean, this is like a kid coming up to a parent saying, hey, can I please just have more fruit and vegetables, you know, in my life? I don't want all that packaged stuff. I don't want you to heat up frozen stuff anymore. Just more vegetables, please, right? If you are a parent, right, you wouldn't say no. Why? Because that's the very thing you want to give them the most, right? right? It's the thing that they need the most. It's the thing that you find pleasure in giving to them. You might not take pleasure in eating yourself, but you find pleasure in giving it to your kids, don't you? Right? Same thing. 
He finds pleasure in giving you the kingdom. Seek it. He loves to give it. And then reason number five, we see this in verses 33 through 34. Why should I seek the kingdom and not be anxious about material things? Because Jesus cares about where your heart is located. What's the response then to how we should view material things? What's, what's your and my relationship to material things supposed to be like? It's to be generous with them. Right? Sell what you have and give it to those who have need. Right? You can pass on the things of the world when you know you have something better. If you're after and you have the thing that you want, you'll pass on the things that you don't care as much about. Right? I was thinking the other night, um, a few of us got to go out to a Brazilian steakhouse to celebrate Anthony's birthday. It was great. Anthony's the foodie uh, in the group for sure. And so he was kind of coaching us on how we should eat this meal at this, this house. They would bring over all this extravagant meat by the table, and you could have as much of it as you wanted. And there's all this different meat that keeps rolling out. And he told us, he's like, they're going to bring out this chicken. They're going to bring out this sausage or this pork. It's going to look really good. Just pass on it, right? They're trying to fill you full of the cheaper meat right? You want to hold out for the really good stuff. And that was hard because every time they were like, this is Parmesan chicken. And you're like, oh man, no thanks. You know, and you're just passing on all these things. But Anthony was right, right? Why? Because we were seeking something that was ultimate, right? The best kind of meat. So even when they brought out the good stuff, we were like, pass, right? I even went to the salad bar and passed on some things, right? Which was a really nice salad bar, but you get the idea, don't you? When you seek after something ultimate, it'll make you pass on other things. That's why John Piper said, when my thirst for joy, when my thirst for meaning, when my thirst for passion are satisfied by the presence and power of Christ, the power of sin is broken. We do not yield to the offer of sandwich meat when we can smell the steak sizzling on the grill. We get it, right? Even if you're a vegetarian, you get it, right? Do you know this, you guys, that there are things you can give your life to right now that will not grow old? There are things that you can give your life to that cannot be worn out. There are things that you can spend your life doing that will never be destroyed. Right? There are things that we treasure. There are things that we obsess over. And then after a month, we never think about those things ever again. We thought they were so important to us. Full disclosure, I've bought many shirts that I thought, this is the shirt, I love this shirt. And then after like five times wearing it, it hangs in my closet longer and then eventually I give it away, right? It felt so important at the beginning. And that's how worldly treasures work. They're shiniest and they're, they're most valuable on day one. But eternal treasures get better with age. And so if you and I are sitting here tonight and we're like, well, what does it mean then What does it mean to seek the kingdom? What should I treasure today? I encourage you, just do the exercise where you put your feet on that eternal horizon of life where you will stand before God and meet him face to face and then just ask yourself the question, what should I be living for? And live for that. He comes in with a knockout punch, Jesus does in verse 34. The security we pursue is a search for a resting place for our heart. Right, we get this. What we treasure, we will protect, and we will fear losing. What it is that you want, what it is that you think you need or have and can't lose, that's what we will treasure. 
And so if my treasure is in another kingdom, if my treasure is in a kingdom that's not of this world, then I function very differently with the things in this world, don't I? I travel lightly because my heart is really homesick. Uh, There should be a photo for you on the screen. There was actually many produced by this photographer, Brian Sokol, who um, captured a lot of portraits of Sudanese and Syrian refugees when they were forced to flee from their homes. And they grabbed what was most valuable to them. This was done in a photography series for the UN Refugee Agency. It was called the Most Important Thing Project. And I I would love just to go through every single photo. It's pretty powerful. These are people who are refugees. They're saying, this place I am now, it's not my home. What should I bring with me? They bring their most important possessions with them. It's pretty mind-boggling. And so when you look at these photos, you can draw many conclusions from your uh, thoughts on these photos. But the point I'm trying to draw from them is that these people are exiles. right? They're seeking a home. And when you're seeking a home and you haven't found it where you currently are, you travel light. You view things very differently. Right? In terms of Jesus' teaching, if you seek the kingdom, it's yours. God's going to give it to you. He takes pleasure in that. And one day, you and I will see him face to face, and we will receive an inheritance that far surpasses anything that you can build in this world. So now, instead of worrying about the things that we need to accumulate, instead of trying to control things so that we feel secure, Jesus goes, no, let's replace that. Let's seek the kingdom, knowing that God loves to give it to you. And how has he given it to you? Oh, he's given you the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. He gave you his son, who was rich. Second Corinthians says, and he became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. Rich towards God. Not with a, a wealth that m- moths can eat and stuff like that. No, an inheritance that will never be taken from you. It's a kind of security that you can have that doesn't come and go with the applause of the crowd. It doesn't come and go with the additions or subtractions from your bank account. It doesn't even come and go when things don't go the way you want them to. We're people who can be wealthy in God's eyes. And when we get to that final day, that's all we'll care about. So he's led us to a secure fear. He's told us a tragic story. And he's called us to seek and receive a secure treasure. And so do we see what the remedy is for all of this? It's not just to quit it. It's not just to say stop it. It's not to give up and go, this is just the way of the world. It's to replace it. Right? With the glory of one for the glory of another. I thought this would be fitting. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids at night lately. And we're reading Prince Caspian to be exact. And I love reading the books of Narnia even as an adult um, because uh, they're fascinating to watch. You know, those kids, Peter and, and Susan and Edmund and little Lucy, as they keep getting transported to Narnia. And they don't really know what they're doing and what they're looking for. And they're trying to always figure it out. And there's so much fear and worry in their lives. They're trying to, like, grow into their shoes of who they really are, you know? And I, and I love reading the books to my kids because there's always this sense of, yeah, this is, this is scary. This is fearful. What's going to happen? But you're always just like, but Aslan will show up. 
And I love reading the books to them because you just, you, you, they hear the glimpses of Aslan showing up and all their ears kind of perk up. They're like, oh, you say Aslan? They get so excited. You're, you're kind of like overwhelmed by Aslan and his glory, even when he's not there. And in Prince Caspian, there's this great scene. It's almost towards the end of the book. They still haven't seen him yet, but Lucy sees him. And no one believes her. But they were wrong before, right? She was right the first time. And so they keep following her, and even though they can't see, she can see. And there comes a moment where they all four see him. This will be on the screen. Lewis, C.S. Lewis writes this. Aslan turned and stood facing them, looking so majestic that they felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. And what a line. And then Peter and Edmund come up to Aslan and they embrace him. They get on their knees. They actually apologize. Aslan just welcomes them. There's so much forgiveness in his voice. But Susan's terrified. She shrinks back. She knows that she's been controlled by her fears. And then Lewis writes, and after an awful pause, the deep voice of Aslan said, Susan. She made no answer. The others thought she was crying. He says to her, you have listened to your fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? Just a little, Aslan. And now, said Aslan, with this roar. And from then on, she's just filled with this sort of courage. What happened? She met Aslan. Her fears were replaced. Her worries were replaced. See, Narnia is teaching me a lot about fear and worry and replacing it with the glory of Jesus. When Jesus' words in Luke here get into our hearts, guys, it makes us want to pack light. It makes us want to seek something greater, knowing that that is exactly what God wants to give to us. When these words get into our hearts, it gives us true, lasting security. It's gospel security. It can't be taken from you. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight as we look at these words, they are challenging words, but God, what a comfort that the rat race really isn't all it's chalked up to be and that you've secured for us the very thing that you've made us for. You're preserving for us an inheritance that far outweighs any thing we go through, any suffering today pales in comparison to the inheritance we will have when we see you. God, we thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for living, for dying, for rising so that we could know you as our true king. I pray that we'd run to you tonight, that you would dispel our fears and that we would keep coming back to you every day, knowing that we will be forgiven in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.